Welcome to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter, what animal in the world, the world. do you think has the strongest bite? Hmm. Hmm. A bear? A, uh, a snake? Oh, not a snake. I don't know. Um, okay. I wonder if it's a mammal. A hippo? Okay. Those How do you measure? Guess. Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> that's what grad students are for, I guess. <laughs> well, I'm going to go through the top 10 animal bites that will completely destroy you. This is from the website Listverse. And here's the list of the top 10 animals with the most powerful bites in the animal kingdom. Mm. Now, a couple notations here. One animal that is excluded from the list is the great white shark, and that is because their bite is just too hard and expensive to measure. And as the article explains, there's a lack of research on their bite. Now, another animal not on the list that should be noted is the Tasmanian devil. The Tasmanian devil has the most powerful bite relative to its body size of any living animal tested at 200 PSI or pounds per square inch followed closely by the African painted dogs. Remember a couple of years ago, Peter, a two-year-old child fell into the wild dog enclosure at the Pittsburgh Zoo. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah, the mother put her kid, the two-year-old kid, on top of a railing at the edge of the viewing deck so the kid could get a better view of the wild dogs, and the dogs mauled the kid to death. Why a mother would do this is beyond me, and why we keep wild animals in zoos is another topic of discussion. But anyway... Number 10 on the list. Okay, of, wait, before you yeah. go. So uh, you said pounds per square inch. Right. That is the measurement unit that's used uh, in this survey? Correct. Pounds per square inch. And it's measured or estimated? Uh, do you have, like I said, you've got a brave lab technician. Yes, brave lab technician is right. But in this article somewhere, it talks about National Geographic measures the bites of these animals somehow. I don't know how. Okay. Anyway. Number 10 on this list is the king of the jungle, the lion at 600 PSI, pounds per square inch. Now, one reason the lion is not higher in the list might be that their hunting habit, strangling its prey by biting its trachea, lacks the need of a strong bite. Number nine on the list is the tiger at 1,050 PSI. The tiger is the biggest species of the cat family. They can reach 3.3 meters and weigh up to 300 pounds. Like the lion, the tiger tends to bite the throat of their prey to cut the flow of air and blood to the animal's head, but their bite is nearly twice that of the lion. Peter, did you know that there are more tigers in captivity than there are in the wild? Yes, I know that. How sad is that? It's very sad. Number eight on the list spotted hyena oh. with a bite force of 1100 psi with its strong bite force the spotted hyena can crush giraffe bones it's this scavenger behavior of the spotted hyena which is the most likely reason for the hyena's strong jaw since it needs a powerful jaw to get to the marrow inside the bones left by lions and other big predators although they look like dogs the hyena is actually more closely related to cats well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh. Number seven on the list of the top 10 animals with the most powerful bites is the grizzly bear at 1,200 pounds per square inch. You guessed a bear, right, Peter? Yeah. The grizzly bear is the North American subspecies of the brown bear, and it's known for its incredible size and aggression. They can weigh from 600 to 1,000 pounds. 
and the grizzlies considered more aggressive than any other bear. Because of their large size, grizzly bears are unable to climb trees, but despite their large size, the grizzly can run up to 34.8 miles per hour. Grizzlies mostly feed on berries and nuts, but do hunt. They can pose a danger to humans if they're surprised or if the humans get too close to their cubs, but very rarely, if ever, they go after humans for food. Number six on the list is the gorilla, 1300 PSI force bite. Gorillas are vegetarian and their jaws are primarily adapted to chew strong, hard plants like bamboo, which have given them incredibly strong jaw and neck muscles capable of punching a 1300 PSI bite. Right, that's where they get their fiber. Right. They are our closest relatives after the chimpanzee, and their numbers are shrinking rapidly, with only 700 mountain gorillas left in the wild. Gorillas tend to be gentle creatures and sometimes are referred to as gentle giants and do not pose a threat to humans. And I'm guessing that no one messes with them in the jungle anyway. You better believe that. Number five on the list of the top 10 most powerful animal bites is the hippopotamus. I think you said that one too, Peter. Hippopotamus has a bite force of 1,821 PSI. Yeah, the 21. Someone's there measuring this thing. That just, <laughs> not no, 20 just, and not just, 22. 1,821. Oh, yeah. The hippo is another big, powerful herbivore. The hippo is one of the most feared animals in Africa, being highly territorial and aggressive. It's been known to knock over small boats. The word hippopotamus comes from the Greek water horse due to the hippopotamus's fondness for water. The hippo's closest cousins are whales and cows. Wow, whales and cows. You know, it's interesting to picture them as, a, as aggressive, especially the way they're depicted like in cartoons and in children's toys and stuff like that. They're so friendly. You just want to hug them, right? I know. Little right. kids standing on its I know, like, nose. I know. Oh, so nice. <laughs> I want to kiss a hippo. No, don't kiss her. Number four on the list is the jaguar. Yeah. 2,000 PSI. The jaguar has the strongest bite force of any cat. The jaguar kills by biting the head of its prey. The jaguar comes from the Amerindian word jaguar, which means he who kills with one leap. Wow, that's a good word. Number three on the list, American alligator, 2125 PSI. The American alligator is one of only two species of alligator left in the world, the other being the Chinese alligator. With an estimated population of 5 million, 1.2 million live in the state of Florida. Its range includes Florida, Texas, Louisiana, North and South Carolina, Georgia, and Alabama. They share territory with the crocodile. Their diet consists mainly on fish, turtles, and small mammals. Number two, saltwater crocodile, 3,700 PSI. Peter, do you know the difference between a crocodile and an alligator? Oh, I know there are many different... I used to know it. I forgot them Yeah, all. there are many differences. Both are semi-aquatic reptiles with extended snouts, and they come from different parts of the world. Some physical differences might be in their snout, mouth, and nose. Crocodiles have long, narrow, V-shaped snouts, and the nose of alligators are wider and U-shaped. Mm. They have color differences, too. The typical crocodile tends to have a coloration that is olive-brown hue in color, and alligators have a darker, almost black appearance. Lori, I remember when I was a medical intern, the first place they sent me was down to Homa, Louisiana, which has got like an elevation of like zero. And uh, I was working at the 
at the county hospital down there, and uh, I was exercising and running along the roads, and there's this black debris on the ground, and I keep on running past this black stuff, and, and then I'm realizing it's alligator roadkill <gasps> is what I'm... And then I'm realizing, how did this get up here? It's a couple of feet above the, the swamp that I'm running on, and so I stopped running on the streets. Oh, my God. It, it was, it was the, the strangest thing to have that realization that you were surrounded by these things as you're running. So I just didn't do that anymore. Are you dreaming of alligators chasing no, you? No, no. Fortunately, that doesn't haunt me like uh, the test I forgot to study for. Right. Or the building in which you forgot your classes being taught in. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to number two, this is the saltwater crocodile. And we were talking about how these pounds per square inch of force gets measured. National Geographic apparently has figured out a way to do this. And they measured this crocodile bite force of 3,700, yet they only measured a few smaller crocodiles. National Geographic claims that if this number were to be translated to 20-footers, which do exist, the number could be higher than 7,000 PSI. Mm -hmm. These monsters are found from eastern India to southeast Asia and northern Australia. Number one on the list of the most powerful animal bites in the world is the Nile crocodile at 5,000 PSI. Nile crocodiles tend to be about the same size as the saltwater crocodiles, and their bite seems to be in the same range, could be interchangeable when it comes to being placed on this list. Nile crocodiles eat mainly fish, but like the saltwater crocodile, they will attack anything that crosses its path, including zebras, birds, and even small hippos. Mm. Okay, there you go. The most powerful animal bites. Mm. So the biggest lesson to learn from all of this? Stay in your house. <laughs> Don't be the lab technician for National Geographic responsible <laughs> for measuring these animal bites. That's too. Peter, let's see how well you are paying attention to me. Mm. Why should I start now? What do you do if you come in contact with a grizzly bear? Do you try to outrun it or climb a tree? Okay. You can't outrun it. You have to climb a tree. Exactly. Okay. Very good. You remember, grizzly bears can run up to 35 miles per hour. But you need can. to know it's a grizzly bear, and not that's a different right. kind of bear. That's a good point. Yeah. Which animal comes from the word meaning he who kills with one leap? Yes. The jaguar. Yes, that's right. Yes. Jaguar. Remember? Remember the guy from Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom? He said the jaguar. Okay, Peter. In which state would you most likely come across an alligator? Alligators are from uh, Florida. Right. Florida. Five million alligators in the wild. 1.2 million in Florida. Very yes. good. Yes. Would you rather be approached by a Tasmanian devil yep. or a gorilla? Oh, approached by. Mm, uh, I'm go uh, that's a trick question. I'm going to say that the Tasmanian devil, maybe, because it could bite me but not kill me. No, you oh. weren't listening. Tasmanian I'm listening. devil has the most powerful bite relative to its body size. Yes. Gorillas are known as the gentle giants. But he but can you, still crush me. I know. You wouldn't want him to sit on you. <laughs> okay. My parents were recently in a sanctuary in New Zealand, and they saw a rescued Tasmanian devil. They said the guide said not to... Don't try to pet it. Right. It's going to bite your hand <laughs> off. Try to pet. What is the plural for hippopotamus? Oh, hippopotamuses. I think so. Hippopotamuses. That's what I've been saying. Oh, okay. And last one. Good. Which wild cat would you least want to hug? I would not want to Lion, hug. Lion, yeah. tiger, or jaguar? <laughs> I'm going to say, uh, wow, I'm going to say tiger. Oh, okay. 
I don't know. It's just a personal question. Personal question. I'd like to hug them all, especially a lion. And especially after the sedation from the dart gun. I'm okay with that. You know, a little touch. Okay, Peter, you're sort of paying attention. Well, I was paying full attention. I just don't remember okay. the difference. Okay. Thank you guys for paying attention to me, at least. And don't go away. More great stuff right here on Animals Today. Welcome back to the show. There's a new survey just released about the Swimming with Dolphins program in, of all places, Arizona. Uh, this follows the opening of a new dolphinarium in Scottsdale. And here to tell us about what's going on is Dr. Naomi Rose, marine mammal scientist at Animal Welfare Institute. Hey, Dr. Rose. Hi, how are you? Okay, so there's this uh, new survey out. Who commissioned this survey, and what's the... We did. uh Um, There are two local groups in Arizona and the Animal Welfare Institute. Uh, We work together to um, commission this this poll. Okay, and why did you do it? Well, whenever um, we try to determine, you know, what's going on with a new facility like this, you know, you want to get a sense of where the public stands on it. And we could say, you know, oh, the public opposes it, and Dolphinaris would then turn around and say, oh, no, no, they support it. So we work with independent um, polling companies to conduct these sorts of polls whenever we're interested in trying to get to the truth of the matter. Okay, so what's Dolphinaris? Dolphinaris is the facility in Arizona. It's the company that owns it. It's actually Mexican-based. Um, it's uh, based in Mexico, and it's expanding into the United States. And the one in Arizona has just opened. Oh, yes, just opened. October 15th, I believe, was the grand opening. Uh-huh. Are there whales in this one? No, no. This is just a basically a swim with the dolphin program. Mm-hmm. So these are bottlenose dolphins, and um, I believe there's eight of them, if I have that correct. What was asked in the survey, and what did you find? So it was a very straightforward brief survey basically asked, you know, are you aware or, well, you know, as you may know, I can actually read these to you if you want me to, but it just said, you know, if you, you know, as you may know, there's a new facility in Scottsdale and you can swim with the dolphins there. Um, and in general, do you strongly support, somewhat support, somewhat oppose or strongly oppose mm-hmm. having dolphins held in tanks for this purpose? And what we d- determined was that 49% of the public is opposed to holding dolphins for swim with purposes, Mm -hmm. which was a big shift. I've been doing this for 23 years. This is a big shift from what it used to be. Swimming with dolphins is like a lot of people's, you know, sort of bucket list activity. And, you know, everybody just assumes that the dolphins want to be with people as much as people want to be with the dolphins. That's a charming thought, but it's, it's kind of um, if you give it any thought, if you give it some really logical thought, unlikely. <laughs> so, um, in fact, we've been working very hard to educate the public about this, and I think we're finally seeing some shift in the public opinion about this. So 49% were opposed to keeping dolphins for swim with purposes, and only 32% supported it, and the the rest, 19%, are undecided. So um, I think that we are finally getting a shift here. Believe me, 20 years ago when I started all of this, it was the other way around. Mm. Well, well, congratulations. Another element that I read in the release has to do with who is the decision maker in whether to visit. Yeah. Tell us about that. 
from the perspective of Dolphinaris, from the perspective of the facility, I think they ought to care about this. 55% of women 25 to 45, that's, you know, mom. Yeah. <laughs> She's the one, you know, the, the wife, the mother of a family, you know, often makes these sorts of decisions. Where are we going to go on vacation? What are we going to do? Um, and, and in that sense, 55% of that age group and that gender are opposed to these activities, mm-hmm. this activity. 55% are, are opposed to it, and 30% are strongly opposed to it. A third of women of that age group, mom, are strongly opposed to swimming with dolphins, mm. you know, in, in these concrete tanks in the middle of the desert. Yeah. So it's um, definitely something I would think dolphinaires should care about. Give us a little broader view. Why does the Animal Welfare Institute, or you personally, op- oppose these sorts of things? So I'm a marine mammal biologist. I'm actually a dolphin biologist. Uh, um, my specialty um, is in orcas. I'm, I used to spend a lot of time out in the, in the wild with those guys. Mm-hmm. But I'm also, you know, well-versed in, in all things cetacean. And I have to tell you, of all the species out there, they are at the top of the list of wildlife that simply cannot adjust, simply cannot thrive in concrete tanks. We oppose this activity, we oppose the public display, the captive display of all whales and dolphins everywhere. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to building a brand new facility in the middle of the desert, I, you know, I just can't begin to tell you how inappropriate that is. You know, dolphin will tell you, oh, you know, we, we're bringing the dolphins to the desert because otherwise people who live here can't know anything about them. Well, one, of course, people can learn all sorts of ways these days, Yep. you know. There's technology that brings dolphins right into your living room, for heaven's sakes. You know, I don't think you need to see the living thing anymore to appreciate it and learn about it. But the idea of bringing the dolphins to the desert because people have some sort of right to see them there is a little old-fashioned, I think. And quite frankly, I again, I'm not really sure, you know, how anybody could think putting a multi-million gallon hole in the ground full of water that has to be salinated Mm -hmm. because that's what dolphins need um, in a region that has water shortage problems um, is a good idea. This notion that uh, you need to be in contact or actual physical, physically near the animal to learn anything and that what you learn actually will help animals elsewhere is pervasive in the whole field. I think it's... um, waning. Mm, You know, it used to be the conventional wisdom, I agree with you, but I think we're shifting in that regard. And it's simply because historically, you know, everybody thought, well, you know, zoos and aquariums do good work, and sure, they, you know, we need to see them and and, and be near them to, to appreciate them and learn to love them. If that is what is required for people to help wildlife in nature, then there's an awful lot of species that are not held in captivity that are doomed. Yeah. And I don't think they are doomed. I think people, for example, love whales, don't they? They love humpback whales and the songs they sing. They love the whole romance of sperm whales and Moby Dick and all of that. Neither of those species has ever been held in captivity. Yes. <laughs> and most people have never seen them in the flesh right. unless they've gone whale watching. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that people love them and appreciate them and want to help them clearly doesn't require the living animal to, to invoke. So I, I would disagree with that on its face. It's just clearly not true. Any final words for our people who want to end this practice? 
Well, I, you know, I really have always pointed out to people that they should try to see this from the dolphin's point of view. So what we have here are eight dolphins in a 10-foot deep swimming pool, just like the kind you have at a hotel, filled with fresh water that's been artificially salinated, swimming around in the hot desert sun, and they are, in fact, swimming around in the hot desert sun because there's very little shade at this facility. And they're there to amuse you. They're there to entertain you. And that's their life, mm-hmm. 24-7. You get to go home at night. They'll never see home again. And I really hope that people can try to appreciate, you know, that kind of future for these poor animals yeah. that are now stuck in this box. Well, thank you for that graphic concluding thought, Dr. Naomi Rose, Animal Welfare Institute. We appreciate you coming on Animals Today. Thank you. I want to thank you for listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. Now in our 10th year of consecutive weekly broadcasts, Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please visit them at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. And thank you for your interest and your support. Welcome back to the show. We all know about the amazing, sensitive sense of smell possessed by dogs, but here's a new, at least for me, use for that ability. Dogs working in detection roles to aid conservation. I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Pete Coplillo. He is executive director of Working Dogs for Conservation. Hi, Pete. Hi, Peter. Thanks for having me. What is your organization? What do you guys do? Well, uh, we we train detection dogs who do conservation work all over the world. And so 20 years ago, uh, what that meant was mostly ecological monitoring. We would uh, find uh, scats or or animal poops. Um, And and the reason we started doing that was because back in the 90s, it became possible to get DNA from scat. So fecal DNA and and lab work um, based on it. became possible and our field started to grow. And ever since then, um, we've started, uh, we've continued to diversify the, the targets that the dogs search for. So nowadays we still do a lot of those scat studies and ecological monitoring, whether that means finding habitats for endangered species or protecting those habitats or counting them and monitoring their populations. But we also do detection for invasive species so preventing them from being reintroduced uh, or introduced in the first place or finding the every last one so that they can be removed. And um, we also now do a lot of uh, law enforcement for anti-poaching and anti-trafficking for uh, traffic species. And, you know, that it's a lot of elephants, rhinos, pangolins, things like that. But we also have dogs working in this country doing the same thing. You know, we love our dogs around here. So let's first talk about the dogs and where they come from and how they're trained, and then maybe some of the uh, specific activities and roles around the world. How do you determine early on whether a dog is a good candidate and where do they come from? Yeah, well, we're a little different than a lot of organizations and and certainly than a lot of uh, agencies like police or military in that we uh, rescue the dogs that we train. 
So what we're looking for is high drive, high energy. You know, the, I'm sure you've encountered a dog and you've made a mistake of throwing his ball for him once and then you realize about on the second or third throw that this is going to last as long as this dog's going yes. <laughs> can, to can handle. If it's 700 throws later, you're still wondering if he's ever going to poop out. Those are exactly the kinds of dogs we look for. That high drive, uh, toy drive is what we call it, is, is really key. And so those are often the dogs that are really don't make very good family pets. And so they're the dogs that a lot of shelters have a hard time placing. So it's, it's, a, it's a win-win for everybody. So we've got a, a, a framework, and in fact, anybody anywhere in the country can, can use it to identify um, a dog and, and to identify the traits that, that, are, that we look for. It's, called, it's a website called Rescues to the Rescue. It's yeah. the number two. Um, if you just Google Rescues to the Rescue, it'll come up. And anybody can see a video on how to, how to screen dogs, and then they can let us know about it. What does it take to train a dog, and how do you keep a dog working at peak performance? Well, it takes uh, a lot of dogs. Um, it takes us about between eight weeks, more generally three, three to four months to, to take a new dog. We generally look for dogs about a year old um, because it is, it's taxing, it's hard work, and it takes about you know, three to four months to teach them how to be a detection dog. And, you know, that's that's basically learning the game. And the game, this, the, the simple version of the game is that they love to play ball and that, that we pair their ball and their toy with uh, the target, whatever scent we'd like them to search for. And then they learn that when they search for the the, the target that the handler asks them to, then they um, they get their bo- they get their ball and they get to play, and then as a dog's career goes on, we may add new scents to their repertoire. You know, we we um, we've got uh, a lot of dogs who have worked their careers well into their their teens. Um, Wicket just retired a little while after her 13th birthday, and she was on 32 different scents. So once they've learned that game. Then as they go forward and as they, as they continue in their career, we do a lot of maintenance training. You know, we often say dogs are, dogs are never done. They're either training or they're retraining. And so we keep them, keep them sharp and keep them uh, ready for the projects and scents that are coming up. And they do a fabulous job. How do your dogs help in the detection of illegally trafficked animal uh, products? Yeah. Well, the part that I like the most about that (laughs) process is the anti-poaching. So they are trained, all of our dogs are trained in guns and ammunition. And so they will inspect vehicles going to and from national parks. So illegal Illegal guns can be um, can be confiscated. Um, guns are very hard to get in Africa. And when a single poacher has a gun, um, often he will use that gun to poach, but he'll often also loan it out to other poachers. So one gun, if we seize one gun, that may put as many as 10 poachers out of business. So we're really happy when that happens because, yeah. um, because you know, that's before an animal dies. However, you know, we're not always successful. We can't be everywhere. So when animals are poached, if they're trying to smuggle either the meat or the ivory or rhino horn or anything out of a protected area or even smuggling down road raids, roadways or rail or, or, or boats to, to smuggle it out of Africa to Asia or to this country or even out of this country. You know, animals get poached and, and um, smuggled here as well. Then our dogs inspect vehicles or, or parcels or, or really any, any way. And 
interdict the, the the smuggling process and hopefully have a uh, you know help their handlers and law enforcement do an in- investigation and and figure out not only where it came from but who's ordering it and where it's going and all of that stuff can you speak a little bit about invasive species detection uh, whether on the land or aquatic a number of years ago we started working on on plants just to see if dogs could detect plants and 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 they are quite good at it we use our eyes to uh, identify and detect plants, but dogs will use their noses. And even species that are very difficult to discriminate, very difficult to tell apart for a botanist, or even if, you know, someone like me who's a bad botanist, <laughs> you know, they can tell them apart even if they're not flowering. And so that's really key for plant invasive uh, species because they can get to them before they flower and before they set seed. And so that's enabled us to, to knock back a plant called Dyer's Woad, for example, here in Montana, and we're nearing eradication of that plant, which was just unheard of, you know, five or 10 years ago. So that's really neat. It's a neat because it combines with how they work and, uh, you know, their noses allow them to do something that we couldn't dream of doing. And then we also work on invertebrates. You know, some invasive species are invertebrates. So we've had dogs in, in the upper Midwest working on emerald ash borer. Our dogs can detect not only the, the adult uh, ash borer, but the eggs and the larvae. And in order to do that project, and of course, if you live in, in the upper Midwest, you know that ash trees are really getting hammered uh, by this emerald ash borer. And not only that, we trained another dog to discriminate ash wood from other types of wood so that we, we know which types of wood have to be diverted to then for a secondary inspection. So often it's the first and the last, you know, having a dog detect the first individual so that they're not introduced. And then once we're trying to eradicate an invasive species, the last one to know that it's gone. But we've also been involved in mapping projects during an infestation. So in the middle of an infestation, we'll use a dog. We used a dog named Tobias, for example, in the Channel Islands in California to map the Argentine ant infestation so that they know where to, where to target their uh, control efforts. So they really they plug in at all different parts of the process. Can you estimate how many dogs you've trained so far? Well, we've got we've got uh, 32 dogs in our care right now, um, and we're a little over 50 dogs in the history of the organization that we've that we've trained uh, over the course of our of our work. You know, they've we've been at it for uh, almost 20 years now, and um, if we select them well, we get young dogs, so they get a long, nice long career. Um, we also make a commitment to you know it is hard work. Not all dogs are cut out for it. So even if we bring in a dog to start training them and then halfway through or they're training or well into their training, sometimes they poop out and they just decide, hey, I'm not I'm not really up for this, uh, either because they lose interest, they don't like the detail work or anything like that. So the commitment that we make is then we find them a forever home. They never go back to a, a shelter situation or we make sure that they're in a suitable home for a drivey working dog um, like them. So and, and, and those are above and beyond the 50 the some dogs that we've, we've worked on in our history. We learned about your work when I read an article out of uh, Washington State and a dog was deployed there at the port. And, and yep. I would imagine that uh, demand is increasing for your dogs and your services. How are you dealing with that? It is. It is. Um, yeah, unfortunately, it's, just, it's, it's increasing because of 
global trafficking. Um, and Benny, the, the dog in, in Seattle, is part of that. Um, and he's a great he's a great dog. And Lauren Went, his handler with with uh, with Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife, is fabulous. And it's also increasing because of new laboratory techniques. So you know we're now able to to monitor. Um, pharmaceuticals, heavy metals, flame retardants, um, and rodenticides in carnivore scat. That's purely a lab technique that they can extract those, but we can know if those species have been exposed. So uh, I joke a lot that the, the, the value of scats just keeps going up and up because we can get more information from them and the laboratory techniques cost less and less. So there's huge demand. And part of the way we keep up with it is that rescues to the rescue site is finding new dogs. We screen about a thousand dogs for every one that we take. So having a whole network of people across the whole country. And in fact, it's actually international now. We've got people in South Africa joining that network to, to screen dogs and get them uh, placed with conservation detection organizations. And it's not just us, it's anybody. Anybody can, any reputable organization that trains dogs can do that, can can take dogs from rescues to the rescue. So we're really trying to, to scale up. And and the other thing that we've done is is now we do capacity building. So we train others how to do do the work that we're doing. You know, it would be it would be um, clever or crafty of us to, you know, keep this stuff proprietary, but because it's conservation, because there's so much need we really believe strongly in, in sharing and being a, an open source organization. So pretty much everything that we do, we train others how to do it. And we do a lot of that in Africa and in Asia. We're starting a lot more in Latin America now. So that takes up a lot of our time is, is capacity building and helping others do it. There's a wealth of information on the website. Please give us that address. Oh, thank you. Thanks for asking it. It's uh, WD4C.org, and that's the number four. So WD4C.org. Dr. Pete Coppolillo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for your interest. There is no getting around it. The great outdoors isn't so great for your cat. From speeding cars to toxic lawn chemicals, coyotes to cruel humans, cats are no match to the dangers of today's world. The good news is animal behavior experts say cats don't need to go outside to be happy. Your family will be happier and healthier too without the ticks, fleas, diseases, and the dead critters the outdoor cats bring their owners. And you will never have to explain to a crying child who or what hurt her pet or why he hasn't come home. Cats can enjoy a happy and safe life indoors. The key is to provide attention, exercise, and a stimulating environment. Play with your cat. It's fun for both of you. You can hide toys around the house, too. Just make sure there can be no detachable parts that can be swallowed. You can protect your cat from becoming a tragic statistic. Tomorrow may be too late. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at www.aianimals.org. That's aianimals.org. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner, and you're listening to Animals Today, your home for serious talk about animals. I'm proud to say that we are now in our 10th year of continuous weekly broadcasts, bringing you animal welfare and animal rights news and stories from around the globe. Animals Today is brought to you by the Animal Welfare Organization, Advancing the Interests of Animals. Please check them out at aianimals.org and consider making a donation to help support the show. That's aianimals.org. And thank you for your interest and your support. Well, September is Save the Koala Month. 
You know what that means, Peter, right? It saved the koala month. Pop quiz. Oh, yes. Did you have any classes where your teachers would spring a pop quiz on you? Oh, my goodness. In Spanish class, in like in eighth grade, it was just a nightmare. That and you know what? Wait, wait. They yeah. would say, okay, does anyone have any questions? Okay, no questions. Okay, pop quiz. You must all know the material, right? I hate when they did that. Were you prepared? It was just terror. It was just not fair. That, that sick feeling in your stomach. Uh, I had a math teacher that would give us a pop quiz once a week, but we wouldn't know which day of the week it would be, so we would just always have to be prepared. That's terrible. That's what gives you ulcers. <laughs> okay, so koalas. Okay. True or false? Koala bears are a type of bear. Oh, that's a funny question. I don't think they're bears. That's correct. It is false. They are not bears, and they are not even related to bears. They get their name koala bear because they sort of look like teddy bears. Mm-hmm. True or false, koalas are marsupial mammals. That's true. Yes, that is true. Marsupial meaning they carry their babies in pouches like kangaroos and opossums. A newborn koala baby is called what? A joey. Very good. Yes. This little joey is less than an inch in length, lives in the mother's pouch for about six months while its eyes, legs, and fur develop, and then he or she makes its way out of the pouch onto his or her mother's back and just rides on mom's back as joey continues to be nursed by mother with her milk. And then after about a year, she or he is pretty much fully weaned and is off on its own. Fully grown koalas weigh about 20 pounds. Peter, koalas have litters of babies like Dogs and cats, true or false? I'm going to say, let's see. I'm going to say, yes, more than one. False. Ah. One baby at a time. Mm. Koalas live in packs, true or false? No, no. I'm going to say no, false. They prefer to live alone. That's right. Koalas spend most of their lives in trees. The only food koalas eat are eucalyptus leaves, fruit and nuts, insects and rodents. Oh, I believe those eucalyptus. Eucalyptus, is that? Am I saying that right? Eucalyptus leaves. That's correct. The only food koalas eat, which happens to be poisonous to most animals, are eucalyptus leaves. Koalas have certain bacteria in their stomachs to help detoxify the chemical toxins in the leaves and helps with the digestion process. They eat about a pound of leaves per day. There are different varieties of eucalyptus leaves in the wild, and each koala acquires a taste for a specific variety by adulthood. And koalas don't need to drink much water. They obtain most of their water from the leaves. So they spend most of their lives in trees, and they need lots of trees and lots of space to keep them happy and healthy. Other than in zoos, koalas are only found where? I'm going to say Australia. Correct. The estimated lifespan of a koala in the wild is about 13 to 18 years, but their lifespan is beginning to decline because their habitat is disappearing. As of 2015, the Australian Koala Foundation estimates that there are less than 80,000 koalas left, with the possibility of that number being as low as 43,000. Koalas are not officially classified as endangered, but the Australian koala population has dropped by 90% in less than a decade, so they are definitely threatened. Their population is shrinking due to the destruction of their natural habitat. I read 80% of their habitat has been destroyed, so we're just cutting down all their eucalyptus trees. Mm. Very sad. Yes, I've heard this story before, you know? Habitat loss. Yes, many times. Yeah. Okay, so... What's my score on oh, this pop quiz? You got 50% right. What would that be in, in a math class? Like a C minus? In most colleges, that would be a A minus. 
50% equals A minus these days. Right. Well, you certainly weren't prepared. Eucalyptus. Eucalyptus. What's the plural of eucalyptus? Eucalypti? Eucalyptuses? Mm. 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 What do you have there, Peter? Lori, I have a little study from the Pew Research Center that has to do with the views of various groups of people about how they feel about animals and scientific research. Very interesting topic to our listeners. Yes. Overall, among U.S. adults, 52% oppose the use of animals in scientific research and 47% favor it. Wow, I'm surprised that about half of the adult population is in favor of experimentation with animals. I don't know if I'm surprised by that or not, but I'll tell you there is also a wide gender gap. Among men, 58% approve, and among women, overall 36% approve. Right, because we're more sensitive and compassionate and smarter. They also split it out among those with various degrees of science knowledge. They've got this little test. And uh, among those with high scientific knowledge, 63% approve. Wow. Among those with medium scientific knowledge, 44% approve. And among those with low scientific knowledge, 37% approve. There that you go. No, that doesn't make sense. Well, that's the survey results for now. Well, that doesn't make sense to me because scientifically knowledgeable people ought to know the limitations of animal research and how it's not applicable in many cases to humans. Oh, and I've got one more element of this in case you were wondering if there's a partisan difference in the survey results. And the answer is no. Whether you're Republican or Independent or Democrat, the results stay about the same. Interesting. Yep. Peter, there's an animal shelter in a very small town in Arkansas doing something very cute to boost their adoptions. So the way most shelters or foster care individuals market adoptable animals on Facebook is by simply putting up a picture and description of the dog or cat, right? Well, one of the workers at the shelter thought it would be a good idea to put live video on Facebook with him and the dog dressed up in matching costumes. And the costumes range from superheroes to well-known pop stars. And I will tell you, these are not only generating a lot of attention, but according to this guy who is appearing on the videos, nine out of 10 times the animal on the video is adopted or a rescue group comes in and gets the animal out of there. More than 33,000 people like the shelter's Facebook page, which is more than the population of West Memphis, which is the name of the city in Arkansas. So the video I saw, he was dressed up like Princess Leia and the dog is Yoda and another one where he's dressed up as Batman and the dog is Supergirl. And the guy sings or just does some cute little performance as he's standing there holding the dog or standing with the dog. And it sure seems to be working. That's really great, Lori. Please don't volunteer me, though. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other being sharing our planet, the animals. From the Creative Minds at Kong, we have the new Kong H2O K9 unit, a 25-ounce insulated stainless steel dog water bottle, along with the Kong H2O Caddy, its custom neoprene holder. The durable bottle has a colorful, thick outer silicone shell to resist impact and to aid in insulation. The cleverly designed screw cap of the H2O also serves as a reservoir. Just unscrew the top and pour the water into the scoop-shaped top to allow easy drinking. 
The bottle slides nicely into the caddy, which is worn comfortably over the shoulder, keeping your hands free as you walk. That's the Kong H2O canine unit and caddy.